Welcome to today's episode of the Hashtag Causing Podcast. This is the book club episode of How to Be Anti-Racist, Chapter 13, and we're going to talk about space. Okay, um, starting with the definitions, space racism, a powerful collection of racist policies that lead to resources inequality between racialized spaces or the elimination of certain racialized spaces which are substantiated by racist ideas about racialized spaces. Space anti-racism, a powerful collection of anti-racist policies that lead to racial equity um, between integrated and protected racialized spaces, which are substantiated by anti-racist ideas about racialized spaces. So I'm just going to dive in um, on page 166. I highlighted they hide the whiteness of their spaces behind the veil of colorblindness. I thought that was quite interesting um, because um, you, you, the people who talk about they don't see color are, are usually white, white passing model minority um, individuals. And those few blacks and brown people who say they don't see color are definitely um, with the rest of their conversation are assimilist and um, aren't doing the work of anti-racism and definitely have to um, deal with their own internalized white supremacy and anti-racism. I mean, anti-blackness. There are multiple ways of seeing the world, he argued, but too many black people are looking out at the world from a European center, which is taken as the only point from which to see the world through the European cultures masquerading as world cultures, European religions masquerading as world religions, European history masquerading as world history, theories glammed from European subjects masquerading as universal theories, the rejection of European particularism as universal is the first stage of our coming intellectual struggle. That's quite interesting. That's when we talk about, I mean, when people want to say that whiteness isn't a thing, um, it's not a thing to whiteness because you are the default. Everything that we evaluate things on is based from a white European perspective. Um, so they're talking about this, this professor that they had. So it says, contention that objectivity was really collective subjectivity she concluded it impossible to be objective. And this is where I put quant versus qual. And this is actually your first homework assignment um, on page 167. And that's that, that, that thought of it is impossible to be objective. And so for 167, I want you to think about what racist or racial biases do you have or had that were supported by objective, and that's in quotes, data, quantitative, that you no longer hold or are currently questioning due to subjective, in quotes, data, and that's qualitative, or the lived experience of others. So basically, I want you to think about the things that white supremacy told you were indeed fact, um, and really, they are not fact. They are um, that, object, that objective data. And again, who gets to say 
what objectivity is, everybody's biased, and this is what the whole thing about AI and, and the conversations that people are having in tech that just really make absolutely no sense. There is no such thing as an unbiased perspective, just the fact of having perspective is a bias. And that's what I love about quantum physics. Um, I'm by on, by no means a quantum physics expert, but again, I'm a multi-potentialite, so I, I delved a, a little bit into the, the concept of quantum physics. And I love the idea of the potentiality is everywhere and it's only where you focus is when it looks like it's the singularity. So, um, and I say this all the time. I was like, people could watch, see the same accident happen. And based on the perspectives of where they were, they will have a different story to tell. The same thing is if you're at a, um, in an art class and you are, there's a nude model. And um, based on that new model, everybody's, if you're around the circle of that new model, everybody is, in fact, drawing the model. But if you're on the side of the left side of that model drawing, you can only make assumptions about what the right side of that model looks like because your perspective doesn't see that. And we do it all the time. So yes, we can say there isn't true, there's truth in that we're all drawing the same individual. What is, and I don't, and I, now that I say that, I don't even know if that's the truth. We're all drawing, yes, okay. We're all drawing the same individual, but our perspectives of that individual are different. Yes, that's what I want to say. Okay, that's complex, but yeah. Um, and, and, and until, and let me, let me stop there and say, until you're willing to have those kind of conversations, like I just did in my head, until you're really to get under the surface of, uh, of these conversations and start really digging and, and being honest with yourself and just unpacking some stuff, you're really not doing the work because this work requires us to just do some somersaults in our heads. It's just like, okay, if I'm standing there and I am over and I'm drawing that, but I know my assignment is to draw the whole thing. How do I even know what the whole thing is? I, I mean, it takes that kind of being able to think like that to to really upend the work, the, 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 to really upend the education you've had and to replace that with something that says, huh, you know what? I can't have a closed mind. What I can do, though, is I'm going to... Um, and it's not about debate because I'm just over debate because what people consider debate is not debate. It's just a bunch of ill-informed ass people screaming and hollering. So no, it's not about debate. It's saying, hey, I challenge and ch challenge is not always a bad thing. I'm challenging myself to grow. When I get new information, I need to see where it fits or even if it fits. But what we find so often is people just unwilling to say, hey, this, when they come across something that totally fundamentally is against or, or, or counter to what they believe they know, they throw out the whole, that they throw out any, any understanding or any questioning of what they know as it could be wrong or just slightly skewed. A slight skew can mean a lot. A, 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 a movement towards anti-racism has a greater impact than you think. 
we don't get there. This is not something you can do at light speed. And this is why this whole Buddha judge, he listened to my conversation. Oh, he's not a changed individual. He gets gained new information and hopefully he does something productive and constructive with that new information that causes less harm to people in my community. But there's no guarantee to that. But it takes work and, as I said, consistent demonstrated effort to show that. So, um, yeah. Okay, I just went off on a tangent, but oh well. All right. So on page 168, just tell the truth. That's what we should strive to do to tell the truth. And this is what I, this is what I, I, I um, value. And I'm going to be, I just do value qualitative over quantitative because this is the importance of the lived experience. Um, to me, the, some, how someone interacts with that new body as they're drawing it is more important to me than data points of a new body. Or um, there were 20 people drawing a new body and da 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 da, da. I want to know what were they thinking? What were they, what did they, when they, if they're drawing the whole, what were you thinking about what the other side looked like? Um, did, oh, you use that color? What, what, did you create that color? I mean, that's the kind of stuff that, that is fascinating to me. Um, and that's the kind of stuff that gets us to the next steps um, instead of everyone seeing there's a new body in front of us, then we make judgments. Oh, do I want to even draw a new body that's morally incorrect or blah, 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 blah. Those binary things. But I want to know is, hmm, there's a new body in front of me. I'm looking at a man's penis. I'm, I'm, ha I'm having to draw this man's penis. How do I do that? Um, do I do it? Next I mean, it's just like so many things to just talk about. Oh, that man's buttocks looks really nice. So let me draw, the, you know, or lo look at that muscle in his thigh or her thigh or um, their thigh. You know, that kind of stuff. Those are the things that really, when we're ready to have those conversations, then we can really get to work on these things. So again, I go back. Um, still on page 168. White faculty and students loomed over North Philadelphia blocks, teeming with low-income black people. Temple's poorly paid security guards required everyone entering Gladford, um, Gladfilter Hall and other campus buildings to show their university IDs to prevent those two worlds from meeting. Racist whites saw danger in the ghetto walking on campus. They worried about safeguarding their white spaces inside North Philadelphia's black space but they could not understand why we worried about safeguarding our black spaces inside Temple's white spaces. They branded black studies as ghetto like my neighborhood in North Philadelphia, but insisted it was a ghetto of our making. And I wrote on the margins here, just this gentrification. Um, yeah, you want to be in the spaces. Um, and yet when you get there, you want to change the rules. And um, if you have not heard about the Howard University incident that happened, I guess it was last year, the beginning of this year with this, the, um, the, the um, historic Howard University has been there forever in, in the city of Washington, D.C. Um, it's the community around it is being gentrified and um, it's a private school. It's not a public school. And white people were walking their dogs and leaving shit on the campus, which is quite disrespectful um, and, and expect and getting pissed when people are saying you can't do that. Um, because when whiteness is there, it centers itself and it's totally dis dis disrespectful. Um, 
Um, oh, and that brings up another idea of like New York is having more rat calls than normal. And it's because white people are, are in these now black neighborhoods. Um, and it's not saying that black people got used to rats, but rats are part of New York. I mean, you know, you put trash on the street at night. And because white people are now in these communities, they expect a different service. And so they call the police for anything because they work for them. I digress. Um, the idea of the dangerous black neighborhood is the most dangerous racist idea. And it is a powerful and it is powerful, powerfully misleading. For instance, people steer away from and stigmatize black neighborhoods as crime written streets where you might have your wallet stolen. But they aspire to move into upscale white neighborhoods home of white-collar criminals and banksters, as Tom Hartman calls them, who might steal your life savings. Americans lost trillions during the Great Recession, which was largely triggered by financial crimes of staggering enormity. Estimated losses from white-collar crimes are believed to be between 300 and 600 billion per year, according to the FBI. In comparison, near the height of the violent crime in 1995, the FBI reported the combined cost of robbery and burglary was 40 billion. And this also makes me, I mean, sorry, 4 billion, not 40 billion. And this, I put in the margin, this also reminds me of, you know, um, white collar crimes and they're, they're idolized and they're considered boys will be boys. Um, while black men and women are infant um, or adult uh, adult adultified to an early age, but you can have a forty year old. I mean, think about the the Trump's kids. Um, his they they're like the boys. These are grown ass people with families, and they're con- still considered boys. And the, so there's there's a whole nother layer to that. Racist Americans stigmatize entire black neighborhoods as places of homicide and more mortal violence, but don't simultaneously connect white neighborhoods to the disproportionate number of white males who engage in uh, mass shootings. And, and I've, I've said this before, um, how many times have you seen a, a white mass shooter be taken into custody without incident and a black person in their car walking down the street in their own backyard in their own house playing video games with their um, nephew being shot and killed? None of this is to say that white spaces or black spaces are more or less violent. This isn't about creating a hierarchy. The point is that when we unchain ourselves from the space racism that deracializes and normalizes and elevates elite white spaces while doing the opposite to black spaces, we will find good and bad violence and nonviolence in all spaces, no matter how rich or poor, black or non-black, no matter the effect of the conjoined twi- twins. And I put on here Comiskey Park, White Sox Park in Chicago, because I was talking to a family member about this recently, um, how Comiskey Park is a public park. It is, a, it is the home of the White Sox, but black people in the community, well, not even in that community because they're not in that community, but black people in Chicago know that after a game or at, if there's a game, you need to get the hell off from around Comiskey Park at a certain time, if it's at night, and you shouldn't be in that neighborhood at night because Chicago is still still one of the most segregated and racist cities in the United States. Just as racist power racialized people, racist power racialized spaces, the ghetto, the inner city, the third wor- world, 
a space is racialized when a racial group is known to either govern the space or make up the clear majority of the space. A black space, for instance, is either a space publicly run by black people or a space where black people stand in the majority. Um, policies of space racism oversource white spaces and undersource non-white spaces. Ideals of space racism justify resources inequity through creating a racial hierarchy of spaces, lifting of white spaces as heaven and downgrading non-white spaces as hell. And I've ruled in the margins, Cabrini Green. So if you don't know anything about Cabrini Green, it was one of the most notorious um, housing projects in Chicago. Um, until they tore it down because, again, gentrification. I knew that was going to happen when they put a damn Starbucks uh, near it. And I was like, yeah, this is not going to be there forever. And it was less than a mile away from the Gold Coast. And the Gold Coast is one of the ex- most expensive um, um, real estate in the city. Um, and it's been, it's been there, it had been there forever because of white flight. But um, my first job of um, working with young people was got a job as a youth worker in Cabrini Green. And I was so frightened because of everything that I heard about going to Cabrini Green. And I can tell you that being in the, I never felt safer um, because I was around black people who took care of us. Now, were there gang shit going on? Hell yeah. Was there um, drugs happening? Hell yeah. But you know what was re- quite interesting? And this is bull- This is where the bullshit about racialized spaces, if there was going to be a gang um, altercation that was going to happen, right? And they knew it was going to happen. And we ran an after-school program. They would tell us during the day, send the kids home, something's about to pop off. And they would take, they took care of us. They, it wasn't like everybody was, they were targeting, you know, just uncivilized. No, they had their own shit they were dealing with, but they made sure that we were taken care of and the kids in the neighborhood and the families in the neighborhood were safe. So people knew that stuff was going to happen. And um, you can say what you want to about that and you can make it, uh, you can use your um, racist, racialized um, space ideology or whatever to prove a point that I'm not making. But the point I'm making that is even in that space where the government um, created housing that they did not maintain, the government created policies that that um, that um, that ensure that these individuals will stay in these spaces generation after generation. Um, And I say that when I say that. Um, although housing was quite expensive um, in other parts of the city, if you wanted to stay in with your family or whatever, you couldn't make a certain amount of money. You had to hide. I mean, they literally, and I talked about this in one of the po- other podcasts um, with the Yanni Good, if you want to go back and look at that hashtag cause the scene podcast episode from the beginning of the year with the Yanni Good, they literally broke up the black family. So I don't want to hear how black men are absent from the black family. The federal government broke up the black family as a requirement for people to have their families in home and in this supposed nice housing projects where they were going to have schools and grocery stores and everything they wanted. Families had to make decisions, which included husbands and boyfriends and fathers had to make a decision because they were struggling 
to um to for the male to leave the household so the family could stay in these housing projects and they would have people come around with spot checks could just walk into your home just check and see if there are male clothes there and stuff like that that is think about that that's when we're talking about when we're talking about raising up white spaces over black spaces or non-white spaces that is one of those things so we're going to go to page 171 the hbcus do not represent the real world the argument, black students are better served learning how to operate in a majority white nation by attending a majority white university. The reality, a large percentage of perhaps most black Americans live in majority black neighborhoods, work in majority black sites of employment, organize in majority black associations, socialize in majority black spaces, attend majority black churches, and send their children to majority black schools. When people contend that black spaces do not represent reality, they are speaking from the white worldview of black spaces in the minority. They are conceptualizing the real American world as white. To be anti-racist is to recognize that there is no such thing as the real world, only real worlds, multiple worldviews. Okay, Riley had pulled out the f familiar weapon safeguarding s space racism and menacing black spaces, unfairly comparing black spaces to, to substantially richer white spaces. The endowment of the richest HBCU, Howard, was five times less than University of Texas, Austin, endowment in 2016, never mind being 36 times less than the endowment of Stanford and Yale. The racial wealth gap produces a giving gap. For public HBCUs, the giving gap extends to state funding gap as racist policies steer more funds to HWCUs like the current performance-based state model. And I put in the margins. Policies that prioritize whiteness do so at the expense of the other and yet label them as individual failings. And I'm, I hope over this, the course of reading this, you're, I'm hammering home something that I, I hope you're getting. It is that whiteness has not only has a, is seen as a default, but gets the leg up every single time. It is, has access to the most resources. And, and when it doesn't have resources, it takes away from those resources of other communities and other, uh, other things. It always changes the game so that whiteness is always... Um, in the lead. So it is not about individuals here. Um, comparing spaces across race classes is like matching fighters of different weight classes, which fighting sports consider unfair. Poor black neighborhoods should not be compared to equally poor white neighborhoods, not to considerably richer white neighborhoods. Small black businesses should not be compared to equally small white businesses, not to wealthier white corporations. Indeed, when researchers compare HBCUs to HWCUs of similar means and makeup, HBCUs tend to have higher black graduation rates, not to mention black HBCU graduates on average are more likely than their black peers from HWCUs to be thriving financially, socially, and physically. On an intellectual level, I know that black people have been denied equal access to capital, training, and physical space, but does that inequitable treatment excuse bad service? 
Does not good service like every other commodity typically cost more money? How can we acknowledge the clouds of racism over black spaces and be shocked when it rains on our heads? And I see that a lot. Um, I, I'm, yeah, I, 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 I've done it too. I've done it too and said that I'd rather I'd pay more money for service. Um, and, uh, and in turn, that usually is, um, has been historically, um, majority of the time, white spaces. But now that I, I mean, when I look at stuff, it, it makes sense to me that if I take two businesses, a black and a white business side by side, given the same amount of capital, if one is in a black neighborhood, they're using their capital much differently than one is in the white neighborhood. They're because of insurance rates, they're paying more for insurance and rent um, and all kinds of things um, that equate to a different experience. And I now think about that. Um, yes, I prefer, I will pay, I prefer great service and will pay for great service. But that doesn't mean it's about race anymore or location. I, I so see things a lot differently. I felt black was beautiful, but black spaces were not. Nearly everything I am, I owe to black spaces, black neighborhoods, black church, black college, black studies. I was like a plant devaluing the soil that made me. And that I wrote in the margin, internalized white supremacy and anti-blackness. This shit is so pervasive. It is just so just like fucked up. And this is why I say we all need to be working to be anti-racist. And it's not going to happen overnight. There's no binary because we're all dealing with this shit that we were taught. The history of space racism is long. It is an American history that begins with Thomas Jefferson's solution to the Negro problem, civilize and emancipate the Negro, send the Negro to Africa to carry back to the country of its origin the seeds of civilization. The writer of the South's D. Bowles Review, review searched around the world through the series of articles in 19, 1859 and 1850. Uh, 1859 and 1860 for a moral, happy, and voluntary industrious community of free Negroes. He concluded, but no such ex community exists upon the face of the earth. Oh my God. So um, you telling me this man, this individual scoured the earth. And what's interesting to me here is missionary work. Uh, mm, it's missionary work. There's so much racism there's so much white supremacy there's so much hatred and anti-blackness and missionary work um and so then i i start but i'm not going to read this this section on page 174 that's about sherman and um a conversation between sherman and a person named um garrison fraser and so you, you read that for yourself so i'm going to keep going because the integrationist strategy, the placing of white and non-white bodies in the same spaces is thought to cultivate away the barbarianism of people of color and the racism of white people. The integrationist strategy expects black bodies to heal in proximity to white who haven't yet stopped fighting themselves. After enduring slavery's fury, Frazier and his brethren had enough they desire to separate, not from whites, but from white racism. Separation is not always segregation. The anti-racist desire to separate from the racist is different from the segregationist desire to separate from inferior blacks. And this right here is, mm, Lord have mercy. I'm going to keep reading because I want to talk about this in just a minute. Whenever black people voluntarily gather among themselves, integrationists, 
do not see the spaces of black solidarity created to separate black people from racism. They see spaces of white hate. They do not see spaces of cultural, cultural solidarity, of solidarity against racism. They see spaces of segregation against white people. Integrationists do not see this, that these spaces as a movement of black people towards black people. Integrationists think about them as a movement away from white people. They then equate the movement away from white people with the white segregationist movement away from black people. Integrationists equate spaces for the survival of black bodies with spaces for the survival of white supremacy. And Lord, that think makes me think of the BIPOC space at um, at the um, JSConf EU this past summer. And I we talked about to have a um, a whole um, episode about that as well. And it, for white people, everything is about white spaces. And we're expected, everybody else is expected to come in whether they're welcome or not. And this is what I loved about this. Um, the, inter, in the integrationist strategy, strategy expects black bodies to heal in proximity to whites who haven't yet stopped fighting them. You expect us to continue to come into your spaces where we are being harmed and to take that infliction and take that pain and take that and put that away somewhere because when we talk about it, it makes you uncomfortable. But yet when we put take segregate, when we separate ourselves from you so we can heal and have conversations we need to do and feel safe, you also cause us harm. And this has to stop. This has to stop. So every person who had a problem with the BIPOC space at, at JSConf EU, just know your racism was showing. This was not about why can't I get, you know, there being, you know, I, I want to go in and hear that talk. This was not what that was. It was being told no. Because how dare we tell whiteness no that they can't go everywhere. And I'm not putting up with it. I'm going to call it out as loudly as I can. And if you get your ass embarrassed and, and, and jumped on and canceled, that's on you because you can no longer ha cause harm like you've been causing. Okay. When integrationists use segregation and separation interchangeably, they're using the vocabulary of Jim Crow. Segregationists blur the lines between segregation and separation by projecting their policies as standing on the platform of equal accommodations for each race but separate. And I wrote, um, separate but equal covered up the segregationist policies that diverted resources toward exclusively white spaces. And I wrote in the margins, nothing has changed. And so um, I, that is now your homework number two from page 175. Identify circumstances are within your own community where separate but equal covers up the segregationist policies that divert resources towards exclusively white spaces and what i and I, this right here it talks it says in 1930 segregationist alabama spent 37 dollars for each student uh, for each white student compared to $7 for black students in georgia 32 to 7 in south carolina 53 to 5 so this is my, my whole problem when we talk, want to talk about black schools and Title I schools and blah, blah, blah. A until all schools are getting the same amount of money, we can't have a conversation about there's no equality. It's about equity. Again, let's not compare these lived experiences. You're not spending the same amount of money. 
You're not giving the same resources to all communities at equal measure. You're siphoning off money from non-white communities and giving it to white communities. And so um, continuing on equal thought to be the soft target of the separate but equal ruling ended up being a formidable foe, a formidable, a formidable foe for civil rights advocates. Um, and I wrote in the margin equal like fair and s- other such terms are defined by those with power and privilege. Assumption that the enforced separation of the two races stamps the color race with a badge of inferiority. And then it was interesting about the doll test uh, presented with, um, so on page 176, it talks about um, uh, 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 two psychologists, uh, Kenneth and Mamie Clark, and they repeated their famous doll test for the case presented with dolls with different skin colors. The majority of black children prefer white dolls, which the Clark saw as proof of the negative psychological harm of segregation. And what I wrote is there is... There's so much to unpack here, but the main issue isn't that the separation creates inferiority. It's the result of white supremacy and anti-blackness. Um, black dolls, um, black kids learn at a very early age that being white is favored. That that's just that's that 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 has nothing to do with being a black kid. That has to do with being a child in a world where you realize that you may never be able to articulate it, but you're shown so often whiteness beauty as a beauty image, as the beauty standard, as the beauty ideal. And you internalize it. And that becomes, yes, so you would prefer a white doll um, over a black doll, but it has nothing to do with your own inferiority. It's because that's the message that keeps being told to you over and over again. To separate colored children from others of similar age and qualifications solely because of their race generates a feeling of inferiority as to their status in the community that may affect their hearts and minds in a way unlike ever to be undone. No, that's not true. Uh, What happens is when these same little black kids start understanding and being embraced and and seeing representations of themselves as, as equally beautiful, that changes. Um, it's there is nothing inferior about their minds or their hearts. When they, and this is why representation matters so much. Okay, um, Justice Johnson did not judge white schools to be having a detrimental effect upon white children. He wrote the segregation of white and colored children in public schools has a detrimental effect upon the bl- colored children. It retards their education and mental development, Warren explained. He concluded that in a field of public school, the doctrine of separate but equal has no place. Separate educational facilities are inherently unequal. So is is there are so many layers of this because it's um, separate but equal is inherently in unequal, but it's to the detriment of the black kids, to the colored kids. It's not the detriment of the white kids. Um, and so what I wrote in the margin is this is because whiteness is the default, is the standard. And then we go to what really made the schools unequal was the dramatically unequal resources provided to them, not the mere fact of racial separation. By 1973, when the resource inequities 
between the public schools had become too obvious to deny the Supreme Court ruled that San Antonio Independent School District versus Rodriguez, that property tax allocation yielding inequities in public schools did not violate the Equal Protection Clause in the U.S. Constitution. Again, white supremacy, I wrote in the margin, white supremacy is ever-shifting and, and adapting. So even when your precious data, your precious quantitative data shows you that um, white supremacy is a problem, you shift that and still make it um, and, and change the narrative. It's always shifting. In 1973, Supreme Court ruling ratified the only solution um, emanating from the Brown decision in 1954, busing black bodies from detrimental black spaces to worthwhile white spaces. Since there are adequate Negro schools and prepared instructors and instruction, there was nothing different except the presence of white people. Yeah, I mean, the fact that black students succeed and in, 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 in have great educators in black spaces is not, um, it's in spite of all the, the shit that's put in their way, not um, because of the black spaces itself. A 1959 quote from Martin Luther King, white people view black people as inferior. People with such a low view of the black race cannot be given free reign and put in charge of the intellectual care and the development of our boys and girls. And this is, I put in the margin, you won't see liberals citing this quote. When they want to throw out the Martin Luther King quotes, this is a quote they won't throw out there. Um, continuing on. King had a nightmare that came to pass. Non-white students fill most of the seats in today's public school classrooms, but are taught by 80% white teaching forces, which often has, however, unconsciously lowered expectations for non-white students. When white and black teachers look at the same black students, white teachers are about 40% less likely to believe the students will finish high school. Low-income black students who have at least one black teacher in elementary school are 29% less likely to drop out of school, 39% less likely among very low-income black boys. And I put in the margin, representation matters, and yet harm is also being done by black teachers soaked in the middle class um, uh, and white values. King's Nightmare is the product of the dueling Brown decision. The court rightly undermined the legitimacy of segregated white spaces that hoarded public resources, excluded all non-whites, and are wholly dominated by white peoples and cultures. But the court also reinforced the legitimacy of the integrated white spaces that hoarded public resources, including some non-whites and are generally thought not wholly dominated by white peoples and culture. White majorities, white power, and white culture dominate both the segregated and integrated, making both white. And I wrote in the margin, this helps to explain the argument that blacks were better um, off before segregation. I hear that a lot in Georgia and Atlanta with the Great Auburn Avenue and how much wealth that blacks were able to uh, I just, I mean, we had doctors and teachers and lawyers um, that catered to our own. And after segregation ended or in, uh, desegregation happened, our um, 
black excellence was was you know was gone because people went to white spaces because white spaces were the ones that were and I love this whole thing about publicly funded uh, white spaces the court ruled black spaces segregated or integrated inherently unequal and inferior after brown the integrated white space came to define the ideal integrated space where inferior non-white bodies could be developed again it's this assimilation is bullshit um non-white folks need white folks to help them become these ideal people the integrated black space became the de facto segregated space where inferior black bodies were left behind and you see that with white flight and you see that well before you saw that with white flight they so you left they left to go to the suburbs the blacks who could afford it left to go to the suburbs as well and left the poor blacks in these segregated places um integration had turned into a one-way street a young chicago lawyer observed in 1995 the minority assimilated into the dominant culture not the other way around um only white culture could be neutral and objective only white culture could be non-racist integrated into whiteness became racial progress and that is again why i say that black people cannot be racist because it's never been about the other way around white people have never been about trying to integrate or become black it's not the standard it's not the norm it is not the default like many whites who grew up in the 1960s and 70s, I had always thought the ultimate goal of better race relations was integration, wrote uh, Manhattan Institute fellow Tamar Jacoby in 1998. The very word had a kind of magic to it, but now few of us talk about it anymore. We are not pursuing Martin Luther King's colorblind dream of a more or less race-neutral America. The integrationist transformation of King as colorblind and race neutral erases the actual King. He did not live to integrate black spaces and people into white oblivion. If he did, then why did he build low income Atlanta apartments using Negro workmen, Negro architects, Negro attorneys, and Negro financial institutions throughout, as he proudly reported in 1967. Why did he urge black people to stop being ashamed of being black, to invest in their own spaces? The child of a black neighborhood, church, college, and organization lived to ensure equal access to public accommodations and equal resources for all racialized spaces, an anti-racist strategy as culture-saving as his nonviolence was body-saving. Through lynching black bodies, segregationists are, in the end, more harmful to black bodies than integrationists are. Through lynching black cultures, integrationists are, in the end, more harmful to black bodies than segregationists are. Think about the logical conclusion of integrationist strategy. Every race being represented in every U.S. space according to their percentage in the national population. A black 12.7% person would not see another until after seeing eight or so non-blacks. A Latinx 17.8% person would not see another until after seeing seven to or so non-Latinx. An Asian 4.8% person would not see another until after seeing 
19 non-Asians and native, a 0.9% person would not see another until after seeing 99 non-natives. Whites, 61.3% Americans would always see more whites around them than non-white people. Do it again. They would gain everything from the expansion of integrated white spaces to whites gentrifying all the non-white institutions, associations, neighborhoods. No more spatial wounds for non-white cultures, only white spatial wounds for assimilation. We would all become only white men with different skin colors. And think about that. So when you talk about integration, it, it becomes whiteness can go not only into their spaces, but are welcome into our spaces and be the majority. And so your homework for um, question three is during the next week, honestly assess how many non-whites you engage with and what roles do they play in your life? Again, Question number three from page 179. During the next week, honestly assess how many non-whites you engage with and what roles do they play in your life. Anti-racist strategy fuses desegregation with a form of integration and racial solidarity. Desegregation, eliminating all barriers to all racialized spaces. To be anti-racist is to support the voluntary integration of bodies attracted by cultural differences, a shared humanity, integration, resources rather than bodies. To be anti-racist is to champion resources, resource equity by challenging the racist policies that produce race resource inequity. Racial solidarity openly identifying, supporting, and protecting integrated racist spaces. To be anti-racist is to equate and neuter differences among racial groups. But anti-racist strategy is beyond the integrationist conception that claims black spaces could never be equal to white spaces, that believes black spaces have a detrimental effect upon black people. Let me read that again, and that's where we're going to end. But I want to leave you with this point. Anti-racist strategy is beyond the integrationist conception that claims black spaces could never be equal to white spaces, that believes black spaces have a detrimental to affect upon black people. So it's it it's this thing we need to we need to really think about. We need to it's it's twofold. It's the 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 thought that only white spaces have value and not only that only white spaces that have value, um, it's saying that black spaces cause harm. Um, and so it's a twofold thing. So thank you and have a great day. Thanks for listening to this special episode of the Hashtag Cause Scene podcast. I would like once again to give thanks to the author of How to Be an Anti-Racist, Professor Ibram X. Kendi. Learn more about his work at his website at ibramxkendi.com. Please consider becoming an individual sponsor of the Hashtag Cause Scene movement by visiting the website at hashtagcausescene.com. On behalf of everyone here at Hashtag Call the Scene, we'd like to thank you again for listening to today's show and have a wonderful day.